Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, author and University of California at Davis history professor Winston James talks about his book, Claude McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik. This biography of McKay, a politically outspoken poet, was published by Columbia University Press in July 2022. Winston James was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Professor You've addressed yourself in this book to the political evolution of Claude yeah. McKay, mm-hmm. who died in 1948. Yes. Please tell us who he was and why he was an important figure in African-American letters and politics. Claude McKay is best known as a poet, a very distinguished pioneering poet who emerged into prominence in the 1920s in New York and in what became known as the Harlem Renaissance. He's also a distinguished novelist and a number of important novels, including Home to Harlem, which was published in 1928, which was the first New York Times bestseller written by a Black person. He also was politically active and very outspoken about the position of Black people in relation to their oppression within the United States and elsewhere around the world, including the British Empire and in England itself, where he spent some time. He also wrote two volumes of poetry in the Jamaican Creole language before he left Jamaica in 1912. And those are regarded as, again, pioneering volumes in the sense that they were actually written in Jamaican Creole, the lingua franca of the ordinary people. It was also very much concerned with ordinary working people and women and oppressed groups in Jamaica and so on. He was also known as a very active uh, political figure. He went to Russia in 1922, and spent eight months there and left Russia in 1923. The summer of 1923, went to Berlin, lived all over Europe, and then settled in Morocco. In terms of who he was, he was uh, a radical intellectual who operated in a whole number of domains in terms of poetry, prose. He wrote nonfiction studies, of the position of Black people in Harlem, the history of Harlem. Uh, He had a column in the Amsterdam News, which was the most influential Black newspaper in New York at the time, if not the United States as a whole. He was a remarkable figure, and um, he died before he was 59, you know. Uh, He had a very crowded life and very eventful life. How is his work, almost 75 years ago, relevant Mm -hmm. to what Mm -hmm. we're facing today? 
What is relevant uh, in relation to his work, which was done, as you said, many years ago, many decades ago, generations ago, is the fact that conditions that he talked about, maybe in some detail, but in essence, still prevail. Racial oppression, you know, the oppression of women as well, which he was very much concerned about, uh, very, very advanced in his position on women for the times in which he lived. And, you know, we had the barbarism of the killing of George Floyd, similar to the type of lynchings that occurred in the United States in the 1920s when he was writing his poetry and writing about lynching and so forth. Um, So there's so much resonance today in relation to his work. In many ways, he was ahead of his time He also was interested in not just emancipation of Black people as Black people, but he was interested in the emancipation of working class people. He sought a more egalitarian society, egalitarian in relation to women, egalitarian in relation to Black people, a a greater sense of equality and decency all around, and the capacity for ordinary people to live a fulfilled and dignified life. And that is what comes through his work. So that's why it's so relevant. If We Must Die, the poem for which he's most famous, which was published in 1919, during what was referred to as the Red Summer, was a poem that was picked up by the Black Power Movement in the 1960s and 1970s. It was something that was used in the civil rights movement by the mainstream civil rights movement, even in the contemporary situation in terms of Black Lives Matter, you have the resonance of if we must die in many of those pronouncements emerging during that period. Your admiration for this man shines through. How did you discover him? Well, I was born in Jamaica. I knew a little about him while I was in Jamaica. Not that much, it has to be said. I grew up partly in Jamaica and partly in England, where I went to join my parents as a child, as a teenager. And I came across his work there in much more detail. That's how I I came across him. And it's to do with the, the ferment at the time, the struggles against racism in England, the search for models, ways of struggling, looking at ways in which people have dealt with similar type of problems that they encountered. And McKay was someone that emerged very prominently in that in that type of quest and set of considerations. I was doing my PhD at the London School of Economics and um, I was doing work on political economy, in fact, political economy of Jamaica at the University of London. And I was also active on a sort of grassroots type magazine that a friend of mine, and I was on the editorial board, he edited it. And I knew it was coming up to McKay's uh, centenary in 1989 or 1990, because the differences that people had about when he was born. And I was invited to write an essay about his, his centenary. And it just grew and grew. And then I decided to change the topic of my dissertation to McKay. And and, uh, because I'd written so much on it, uh, I was allowed to do that. And 
And so this project sort of started in embryonic form there. I mean, I've published a number of different things connected to it since then, apart from the book. But that's how it developed. But I also I have to say that I read A Long Way From Home. It's quite often referred to as his autobiography, but he never really called it an autobiography. He just dealt with his travels around the world and different places and different experiences. The voice that emerges from that book was very compelling. It was dignified. It was irreverent. It was courageous. It was indignant in relation to oppression. It was witty, mischievous in places. Um, It was just wonderfully engaging. And I just liked the way in which he moved in the world and not being too overly burdened or apologetic about his blackness. This man has possessed you, in a sense, for at least two decades. You first published A Fierce Hatred of Injustice, Claude McKay's Jamaica and his Poetry and Rebellion in 2000. Now, 22 years later, you're publishing Claude McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik. How do you sustain your interest and your perseverance? He's just irresistible. One of the things that also drove me is the fact that I felt that he has been badly served by literary critics and by posterity in many ways. I felt that people didn't sufficiently appreciate what he had to offer. And so I felt that I was in many ways on a mission to not just vindicate, because I'm also critical in certain ways, but it's just on a mission to put him in his rightful place. I have endeavoured to pay respect to him and to give him the credit and recognition that I think he deserved and didn't get up to this point. And I just wanted to let people know that he's worth the bother. The level of research that I put into this is a reflection of my respect for him. I, I thought he was brilliant. <laughs> I, I just thought he was he's a wonderful guy. <laughs> From working class background, peasant background, very dark skinned, a very racist society. Even in Jamaica, you have racism and colorism there. And he managed to make his way through all of that and actually moved in the world with a great deal of dignity and generosity of spirit and humaneness. He could understand the oppression of other people. Actually, your your name suggests um, Irish background. He he was very, very sympathetic to the Irish struggle. You know, he was in London. He was there with Sinn Féin people in Trafalgar Square. He was selling um, publications by Sylvia Pankhurst and Panikoik uh, called Ireland, the Achilles heel of Britain. <laughs> this was in 1920. And he would walk around and they would call him Black Murphy because he had his green tie and he was selling all this radical literature and stuff. <laughs> and he just writes about that so movingly and so beautifully. And he says that I suffer with the Irish. And he says that because I'm from the peasantry, perhaps help to explain that, this sort of connection to the soil, this urge for the soil. Um, 
So he had this great sense of solidarity and sympathy and empathy, a sort of generosity of sympathies that's just very admirable. Born a Baptist, McKay became a militant atheist and then late in life converted to Catholicism. Please tell us a bit about the role of religion in the life of this black Bolshevik. <laughs> Yeah, his, his parents were Baptists. But what is interesting is that from the age of seven, he was brought up by his eldest brother, Euthia McKay. And Euthia was 17 years his senior. He was a schoolmaster, very dignified and respected member of the community. And Euthia was an atheist um, from his youth, and he was very outspoken about that. He subscribed to the publication of the Rationalist Association, which is, was the leading atheist association at the time in England. He was also connected to the Fabians, the Fabian Socialists, which basically generated the Labour Party in England. He was very advanced in his thinking and in terms of his practices in Jamaica. And McKay was sent away to be brought up by Euthia. Euthia didn't have any children at the time. McKay later on spoke of saying that um, I imbibed Fabian socialism with my mother's milk. So although he, he was nominally born a Baptist or in a Baptist family, his brother was the key person in his upbringing. And he went to his brother when he was seven years old and didn't return to his parents' village until he was 17. And what is interesting is that he had a very, very militant <laughs> rationalism and atheism, very proud of it. And it's there in all of his novels and stuff, but sometimes going out of his way to attack religion. <laughs> So it's very ironic that in the end, he baptizes a Catholic. And it's partly due to the fact, I don't want to diminish the, the seriousness with which he undertook this conversion, but it was very much related to the fact that the members of the Catholic Church were people who looked after him when he was desperate. He had these running conflicts with the Communist Party because his opposition to Stalin and the rise of Stalinism and the, what he regarded as the Communist Party being opportunistic in relation to what was referred to as the Negro question in the United States. And so he was boycotted by many of those people. He had obviously attacked many times the NAACP and the more reformist members of the Black community and the more established members of the Black community. So he didn't have any friends there either. But he had some Black Catholic friends in Harlem who helped him out when he was absolutely desperate and was quite ill. And this was during the Depression years, you know, in the 1930s. So these were really hard times for him. So they supported him. There's one particular woman um, uh, who, who helped him. And then he went to Chicago and he worked for the Catholic Church there, a man by the name of Bishop Scheel, uh, who was very progressive, uh, what we would today regard as liberation theology. And he was, as he puts it, um, even to the end, on the left wing of the Catholic Church. He published in um, The Catholic Worker, 
Dorothy Day's uh, newspaper. So he was a member of the Catholic Worker Movement. And so that really progressive side of, of the movement. But having said that, he did die a Catholic, <laughs> right? It cannot be denied. So you have that transition. It's a very interesting movement. But there's a lot of continuity, though, because of the continuation of his his radicalism, his socialism. Some people think that he became a conservative because he died a Catholic, but he didn't. The, the Dorothy Day movement, the Catholic worker movement was, was a really radical wing of the Catholic church. And Bishop Scheel, for whom he worked, was very, very progressive, uh, spoke about the condition of workers in Chicago at the, during the Depression years and the, the type of conditions that they had to live in and so forth. So it's a break with his rationalism, but it was not a break with his, his more militant politics. And then there are some people who thought that he might have, you know, if he'd lived longer, he would have moved on again. He was always moving. This was not a deathbed conversion for him. Oh, yeah. No, in, in many ways, it's a funny type of thing because he spent a lot of time talking about it and thinking about it. It's a conversion of the head rather than the heart in many ways. He, he needed to convince himself that it was okay. <laughs> in that sense, he's very much a rationalist. He continued to think about this rationally and um, he, for instance, looked up and did research and all these black figures. Um, St. Benedict the Moor, for instance, was somebody that he was researching and looking at the way in which the Catholic Church dealt with issues of race over time and so forth. Um, but yeah, it was a very conscious conversion. There appears to be little in this book about the personal life of McKay. He published some poetry under the name of Eli Edwards, mm -hmm. and he was married for six months to his childhood sweetheart, whose last name was Edwards. They split months after they were married, and she returned to Jamaica to give birth to their child. I don't remember now if it was a boy or a girl, but I it's do a girl. Mm -hmm. a girl. Mm -hmm. I do recall from your book that McKay never met his child. Could you expand on this part of his life a bit? McKay came to the United States in 1912 to study agri scientific agriculture at Tuskegee, and then he left Tuskegee because he couldn't stand the military-like conditions that existed there. Um, he went to another university in the Midwest and then came to New York in 1914. And soon after he came to New York, he sent for his sweetheart. And they were married in, I think it was in New Jersey that the ceremony was held. But it became very clear that married life wasn't for McKay. It was also evident that he was bisexual. So that might have been a part of it. But he, there was also this sort of wandering, you know, the vandalos, you might call it, that had always gripped him, this need to travel and be a freelance. And one of his short stories, he talks about domestic death. He saw marriage as domestic death. 
So married life wasn't for him. And uh, as I said, the marriage died within six months and she went back to Jamaica. The baby was born in Jamaica. They never met, they corresponded. He corresponded with his daughter and they were about to meet when he died in 1948. And she went to teacher's college at Columbia University and she stayed in the United States. In fact, she died in Long Beach out here in California. But they never met. That was one of the sad parts of that story. But there's correspondence between them. I've seen some of those letters and so on, very nice and warm. And over the years, in terms of personal relationships or, you know, domestic life, um, he had relationships with a number of women and men, but he was never one to settle down. Professor, some members of our organization, BIO, which is Biographers International Organization, are retired academics working on their first biographies. And they could profit from your advice and counsel as someone who's published widely and well. How do you persevere when information might seem scarce? And how do you find funding for travel and research? A couple of questions there. But yes, I've had fellowships and I've worked. I mean, I taught at Columbia for over a decade and then at the University of California in Irvine over the last 17 years. I came out here in 2005. It's difficult if you're teaching, but in general, certainly in terms of my work here in the United States, um, there have been some level of leave time to allow you to spend time researching. Um, and then there are fellowships that I've had supported by different foundations. But a lot of it's just to do with my spending time and resources doing this. I had a fellowship at a foundation which entailed my leaving home to go to another state. And I didn't like that. So I haven't applied for those sorts of fellowships since then. I, I, I found it very, very disruptive. So as a consequence of that, I do a lot of it on my own in my spare time. Uh, if I'm to apply for anything, and I'll perhaps do that in the future, I'll apply for something that gives me the freedom to work from wherever I want to work rather than tie me down to some office in some far off state or away from home anyway, and, and away from my archival resources, which I, which I can't carry around. I've actually retired. I've just about retired. Oh. <laughs> so, so my second volume, uh, I still have to do another volume of this work. And I've got a lot of other things to write. And that's one of the reasons why I retired, because I need to work. The text, fascinating. But just as fascinating, to me at least, was reading your voluminous chapter notes. How did you keep track of the material? And how did you work with researchers? There's one person who helped me in London when I'm not there, or if I couldn't get to the archives, um, what was referred to as the public record office, now referred to as National Archives. I generally do my own research. I didn't have the luxury. I didn't have all this money to employ people to do that type of work. I do my own work. I like that. I prefer that. I must say that I don't have the same level of energy (laughs) 
that I used to have when I was young, going to all these archives, and you realize that you get tired after a while. <laughs> but, but it's to do with the accumulated knowledge, and I take copious notes, and I make photocopies, and I file them away. And I have, um, uh, I, at least I used to have a very good memory and know where things are. <laughs> and can retrieve them and, and know certain quotations and moments in which he said them and which letters he wrote to whom. I try to maintain certain standards in terms of my own work. I generally say that I write the books that I would like to read. I write it in a way that I would appreciate it as a reader. How long will you give to the second volume? Well, I've done 99.9% .9 of the research already because I have a full grasp of the entire life in order to write about this particular part. I hope to be able to do it within a year. That was That's the idea, maybe two years at the most. It's a matter of sitting down and writing. What is your writing schedule? How do you spend a day? Do you block out chapters? Do you research as you write? I try to write individual chapters and I draft them and refine them. It's like, you know, a sculpture being made and you go back over it and you add to it and you add the footnotes. You perhaps read some more around the subject. I generally have a plan about the points that I want to make and then I just elaborate upon them. You don't have an outline? No, it's mainly points that I want to make. <laughs> the five points that I want to make in a particular chapter. And then I sit down and, and write it up. But it's not that the first draft or the first time of writing will be fine. I go back to it and add to it, make the rich footnotes richer and more compelling and more, more powerful in terms of sustaining the arguments that is being developed. What tends to happen with me, and my wife talks about that, is that uh, once I get going, I become possessed. And I generally just poke my head out to eat or, you know, say hello and then go back in. And, and so I, I have long moments of idleness, but then when I start working, I work with a frenzy. What advice would you give to biographers? Well, I would say that it would be nice if you find a subject that you're passionate about. I also value context very much. If you're telling the story of your life, then you try and embed that life in a wider context, especially the context is one that we might be unfamiliar with. I look forward to the second book. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That was University of California history professor and author Winston James talking about his book, Claude McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik, published by Columbia University Press in July 2022. We recorded this interview via Zoom on September 1st of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.